Lord, may we tremble at the word of God. May we, Lord, value the living word. God, thank you for your grace today that is so very real. And Lord, remind us that we are on mission with you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Uh, today we continue in the story. Today is the last, if you're tracking along, it's the, it's the last chapter in the story, the book, the story. The story is just 31 chapters. It's, it's excerpts from the Bible, main themes, main people, stretching from the very beginning to the, to, to the very ending um, uh, of this story of love, redemption, and rescue. God's always been about rescuing and redeeming us as a people. Today's the last chapter of the Old Testament, interestingly enough. Next week we will launch into the coming of Christ. We're going to do a little Christmas in March, and so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, we've, been, we've been going, uh, again, along how the Bible fits to, together in this great epic love story. And where we, where we pick up the story today is in the time of Ezra. Nehemiah will be specifically in Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And it's very interesting even how the book of Malachi, how it ends. And I'm going to just talk a little bit about that in a moment. It's, it's interesting, and I don't think it's by accident, how the Old Testament ends and then we see this period, what is called the silent years, as a period of 400 years between the end of Malachi and, and, and the coming of Christ. And, and so the next prophetic voice you see after Malachi, the next prophet that kind of comes on the scene in a visible way is John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. None of that's by accident. No, nothing that God does is just by happenstance. And so... What we know so far is that because of sin and rebellion, and I'm not going to give, I'm not going to be tracking back too far, but because of sin and rebellion toward God, the people doing their own thing, Israel has suffered some severe consequences. They have been split apart as, as a nation. Ten tribes are lost. Two tribes of Judah are taken into exile. Um, and, uh, and, and so they, they are, they are suffering some severe consequences. Um, while in exile, they get favor. I mean, even from the time of uh, under wicked kings and uh, God showed his power under Nebuchadnezzar, under Darius, and then ultimately under Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian king. Some of the people of Israel or Judah lived in that time of exile, and they had great favor. They had great favor with the king. Cyrus even allowed around 50,000 people to go back and begin to build the temple of the Lord. And that was his time of ministry. And um, and then that kind of bleeds into the third group that came under Nehemiah's time to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Um, so the wall is torn down. The temple has been rebuilt. Um, but, but still, there's a lot left to be done. And so this time of, of, of Nehemiah where, where the wall is torn down, and that's where we pick up. And there you'll see this third wave of people coming in to help rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so that's where we'll be today. Uh, I believe that Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is an incredible prophetic picture of the New Testament church. And that's what the call to Nehemiah and the call to the church is it is, an, I think, an incredible prophetic picture, beautiful um, a prophetic picture of the New Testament church, his calling and our calling. The things that God called to them during this time, I think, are timeless, as is the Word of God. It's, a, it's timeless truths to the church. And so once again, as we dive into the Word of God, let's open our hearts 
to, uh, to the Spirit of God and have, have Him speak to us um, as He did and as He spoke at that time in history. Nehemiah becomes the governor of the leader of the people in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Under Zerubbabel, the temple was built. That was that first wave. And the people are constantly, they're going through ups and downs. And uh, they have trouble. There's times of, uh, you know, there's just these ebbs and flows. There's times of peace and victory. There's times of discouragement. And this kind of describes life, doesn't it? Ebbs and flows, ups and downs. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so... They are trying to get their priorities straight about the temple. The temple was built, and that was the first priority. They got that done, and then they stopped. And so they were vulnerable. As, as was the case back then, the, the wall was, was uh, the place of protection around a city. That's why they would try to build these massive walls, as that was the first level of defense. These walls were so big, they would build homes within the walls is to keep the enemy out. So the enemy, the first thing an enemy would have to do is try to figure out how to get through the wall. And so the walls are torn down. They are vulnerable. And, uh, and, and so the, the people uh, had kind of gotten in a rut with the mission that God had called them to. And so, again, we as the church and the people of God, the people of the church, we need to understand that just like in those days, there's still a mission and there's still a vision that we've been called to that Jesus has given us to given to us and we are on mission with him to seek and save the lost to make disciples do not lose that and so it's easy for us to get comfortable it's easy for for us sometimes to get into a rut of life it's easy for us to forget our first love that was why one of the you know the church in Ephesus that Jesus wrote that letter to in the book of Revelation he said this is what i have against you you've le- you've left your first love you have forgotten why you're doing this you were, you, were, you were fully in love with me at first. You understood and your motivation was love at first, but then you forgot and then you kind of went through spiritual stuff and then it became almost kind of a burden. And now you're doing stuff, but you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Don't forget that I love you and I have a mission for you. And so we have to guard our hearts just like they did, that we're living in the kingdom. This, the, the kingdom that we live in is Jesus' kingdom. He said his, his kingdom is not of this world. And so let's look at this story and look at some of the things that come out of it and I believe parallel with us as the church of Jesus, Christ followers, um, and, and the church of the Lord Jesus. So this is a setup. We begin in Nehemiah 1. This kind of will describe what's going on, what's happening at that time um, in history. So this is Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, if that's the way you want to pronounce that, you can pick your own pronunciation if you want. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who have survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. So he immediately feels the burden of what's going on. He feels the burden of the mission. He feels the burden. He feels the weight of it. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. 
Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before, before you. And the night of your, for your service, the people of Israel, I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave our servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to a place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delights in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. So you have this average guy who was a cupbearer to a foreign king. God calls him, God gives him a mission, and he gives him a vision. So he hears the news that the walls, again, were in shambles, and he wept, and, and he felt the weight and the burden of what God was calling him to. I, I, I love this because he recognized that all of this was going on as a direct result of the rebellion of God. He, he, he's gotten the report, the walls are torn down, and he sees this and he recognizes this is all happening because the people rebelled against God. And so he even quotes what God had said to Moses. Remember, I mean, he's, he's going way back in the story. And he says, you know, God spoke through Moses. When Moses gave this prophetic word from God, it says, if you're unfaithful, you'll be scattered. And they're seeing the result of this. But if you return to me and obey my commands, I will bring you back from exile. You see the call. This is a call of salvation. This is a call of restoration. This is a call of redemption. If you will come back to me, the invitation to God is always to come back. This is the mission of the church is to call people back to God, back to Christ. He says, I will bring you back from exile. So God was calling him to lead a mission of restoration. I love that he repents on behalf of the people. He calls his own sin. He said, you know, we've sinned, we understand. And he comes and he begins this place of humility. And when we come to know Christ, and you see basically a picture of salvation here. He's getting right with God. You see that unfold? He's saying, we're wrong, I'm wrong, my family's wrong, we have sinned against God, I acknowledge my sin. This is a picture of salvation. Salvation or getting saved, and you hear all those words, or becoming a follower of Christ, is more than praying a prayer, it's more than going through a religious ritual, it's more than being baptized. That It is about following Christ, acknowledging our great dependency upon Him. And so he basically has given us this picture of salvation. God, forgive us, we need you, we've rebelled against you. And in that place of humility, God calls him. He said, now you are right with God. Now you're on mission with God. That is the mission of the church. We work on this relationship to love him, to get right with him. And then he calls us to reach other people. And so this picture of salvation that unfolds. And God was calling him to lead this mission of restoration. So what is God saying to the church? There is a mission and there is a calling in Christ. It's a mission of restoration to restore and reconcile the hearts of people to God. Again, what does Paul say? He says, we are ambassadors of Christ. 
And God makes his plea through us to be re- for people to be reconciled with God, to be people to call people to Christ. And we walk in this calling as a church by acknowledging our own brokenness. I think a lot of times as we have created this picture of, of that the church is a place that no one has any problems and, 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 and we, we, we have to acknowledge our own brokenness and that's what Nehemiah does. That we ourselves, that we stray away from God and we need to repent, we need to come back to Him. Sometimes we get comfortable, just like they did. We forget the mission. We quit sometimes when hardships come. Sometimes we get involved in the wrong battles and the wrong fray. And so we call people to Christ by realizing our own need of Him, and we actually live it by example. Yes, we do use our words. Yes, we do share the gospel. We're supposed to do that. But we also are supposed to model the gospel and to show people that we are coming back to Christ ourselves. So Nehemiah accepts God's call. He accepts the mission on his life to lead the people in rebuilding the wall. And you'll see this even as we talk about this this specific mission of rebuilding the wall. And again, I encourage you to let it be a prophetic picture of the mission that God is calling us to. And so as you read his story, you will see that the vision and the mission that God called him to was a great cost to him personally. He had to make hard decisions that weren't popular. He was misunderstood at times. He dealt with great opposition. And so fast forward, what does Jesus say? If you want to be my follower, what? Lay aside your selfish ambition. Take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost you. In fact, he says, before you say I'm going to be your follower, before you're my follower, Jesus wasn't just trying to make it, I mean, salvation is easy. It's a gift. But he says, you need to understand what you're signing up. This is going to alter your life. He said, count the cost. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be a disciple, count the cost. Because it, it, it's going to cost you greatly, but it's going to be worth every penny. It'll be worth it when you get to see him face to face and you get into eternity. It will be worth it. But you're going to deal with misunderstandings. You're going to deal with opposition. And it'll be great cost to you, but it'll be the greatest cost you'll ever pay. It'll be worth it. So Nehemiah has to go to get permission from the king that he is, you know, he's a cupbearer to the king. And he, this was a fearful thing too. He had to, and he's asking God, God, give me favor with the king. God gives him favor with the king. He comes up with a, with a mission. So he gets permission to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so Again, he's this ordinary guy. He's a cupbearer cup to the king. And God calls him. God's not looking for our abilities. God's not impressed with how much we can do for him. He's looking for our availability. He's looking for a willing heart. He's looking for those who will walk in humility, as Nehemiah did. Those who will be broken and say, God, I need you myself. Those are that are teachable and willing. And so he gets to Jerusalem, he gathers some leaders, and you know, you can read this on your own time, I'm just kind of giving you kind of highlights of the story, but he gets to Jerusalem, he gathers some of the leaders, and they go out and they begin to inspect the situation, they begin to inspect what needs to be done, and the walls are in ruin, it's as bad as he had heard. And he investigates what has happened, he investigates the needs, how we're going to get this done, how the plan needs to go. I like that he doesn't just jump into it. He investigates, he evaluates, he's prayerful, he's thoughtful, and he's very humble about the whole process. 
And so we as the church of Jesus, we must be prayerful. We must be thoughtful. We must be humble in the things that God has called us to. You know that you are where you're at, just like the time of Esther is, that you, know, that, that you are here for such a time as this. You are where you're at by the design of God. He has ordained your footsteps to be where you're at. It's not by accident. And so with that in mind, as we get up every day that we are on mission with Him, we should be watchful of the things that are around us. We should be mindful of what He wants to accomplish in and through us and be prayerful and be humble because He has given you as individuals, as families, this church a vision and a mission and He wants to fulfill that in and through us. And so then they do this investigation of the leaders and God gives them a plan. They have a plan. And so Nehemiah 3, the work begins on the building of the, the walls. And uh, I, I love that the, it says the people set out to do what was before them. Uh, they found their place. And if you read through Nehemiah 3, I love that it has all these different names of people that we've never heard of. It's not people that you would have read about in Sunday school. It's not these big names of the faith. But it gives the names because in God's economy, everyone is important. Every role is important. It's easy just to look at the great names of faith and say, well, you know, well, I'm not David, I'm not Daniel. Those guys were ordinary people. They were broken, they had faults, they, had, you know, they were weak, they needed God every day. And so we have these names listed in Nehemiah 3, and it says, and, and God positioned them, and Nehemiah positioned them in, uh, around the wall, and he said, all right, you and your family, you will take this section, and you and your family, you will take this section. You're going to work next to each other. And, and all these names are listed because every role is important to God. And there was a call to be doing what you were supposed to be doing. They were stationed there specifically. And so God has specific roles. He has specific callings on each of your life as the church. It's not intended for the church to have parts of the body that just don't do anything or parts of the body that just show up once a week to serve it. We are called the church. It's not just about this building. We are the church. We are the body of Christ wherever we go. And every role is important. And you see this played out in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, where Paul says, you know, there's different gifts and there's different administrations of gifts. There's some very spiritual gifts, but there's also some very practical gifts, but they're all spiritual and they all work together in this cohesive thing called the body of Christ to advance the kingdom, to be his hands and feet and his voice to the people around us. It's not intended for people not, if you're a Christian, you should be a part of the body of Christ. There's a place for you. And we see this in Nehemiah, placing them by families next to each other, right? Your family, you guys have this section. And you, your family, you have this section. So they are working together in unity and encouraging one another. I like that they uses this word a couple of times. It says the people worked in their place zealously. And so there was this excitement about what God had called them to do. They were thrilled about what God, they were thrilled about the mission. There was an expectancy to say, God has called us something that are, to, to something that is bigger than ourselves. And He's called us to the mission, uh, His mission. And that is the calling to the church is that God has called us to something bigger than ourselves. And we zealously, if we, if we have the right attitude, we say, with joy, God, I'm going, to, I'm going to find out what you want me to do. To come in with an expectant heart. 
They were contributors. They were committing their time, their resources, their finances to the vision. And then that Nehemiah 3, you actually see a picture, a prophetic picture of a healthy church. It's a picture of a healthy church. People are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Encouraging each other, zealously working. Not just sitting down and, and you know, and, and, and not just sitting down as a consumer saying, well, you know, you can do my part. And, you know, because that's what would have happened is that other people would have been strained if they, all of a sudden you're, you're the family next to my family and, and then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Now you have to pick up the slack here. The work would get behind and, and you see what I'm saying is, is, is everyone had to do what they were called to do. And you see these people zealously working. It's a picture of unity. They weren't backbiting about the people next to them. They weren't comparing themselves. Well, they got a more important part. You know, I'm, I'm on the sheep gate, and, you know, or I'm on the dung gate. And that's one of the gates, the dung gate. You know, can you imagine working there? And you get the sheep gate, but I get the dung gate, you know, and it's, my work is just a bunch of poop, you know. Because that's kind of what happened there. It's not to be graphic, but but they just they didn't complain. They weren't they weren't you know you know comparing themselves, trying to invalidate others' contribution. It was it was a picture of unity. And so you'd like to think that they were able to do all the Lord wanted them to do with no problems or opposition. Well, if you thought that, you would be wrong. Because as you know, if you read your Bible for any amount of time. This was not going to be the case, and this was not the case here. These two men, Sanballat and Tobiah, they were enemies of Israel, and and they were going to try to come in as opposing forces to try to stop what was going on. And so where there is a vision, where there is a mission, where Jesus has called us, there's going to be opposition. You can bank on it. You You can be guaranteed. There was a pastor friend of my father-in-law's one time that, that he ministered all over the world. And, and you know, he, he, there would be times where he would come under such attack and opposition from the enemy. And it was so discouraging for him in his early, early days. But then he got, he got to a point where he said, you know, I, not, in a, not in a weird way, but he said, I kind of started looking forward to the opposition. Because he said, I knew with opposition that I was doing something that God wanted me to be doing. He said, opposition actually helped encourage me that I'm on the right path here. And so where there is a vision, where there's a mission, there's going to be opposition. And so it says this about Sambalot and Tobiah. It says that they were disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. The enemy gets disturbed when we start winning people to the Lord. We begin to share the gospel. We begin to love each other. We begin to walk in unity. That will disturb the enemy. So they came against the vision and the mission. They tried to ruin it with discouragement. They tried all kinds of different ways. They were trying to sow discord. They were trying to sow division among the people. Discourage the people. You know, look at one time the people were just so overwhelmed at all the rubble and all of the piles of stuff. And and, and they were just so, you know, affected by this. They're going, how are we ever going to get this done? And that's when we see the needs and we understand the needs that are out there. Sometimes it can be overwhelming and we think, how are we ever going to get this done? We get it done by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so the enemy will try to take our peace. He will try to take our joy. He will try to ruin the mission that God has called this church to or you to. And so watch out. Be aware. Most of the time he'll try to get you to blame it on someone else. This, this is not a new lie. 
Think about what the enemy did in the garden. You know, Eve partakes of the fruit first and then, then God comes after they've sinned and he, God comes to the man first and comes to Adam and he says, you know, where are you? And, you know, and he said, well, we were, you know, we were ashamed. We were naked and ashamed. And he said, who told you this? And then immediately, what does Adam do? Adam does not repent. That's the right thing going, God, forgive us. He said, it's this woman you gave me. It was basically saying, God, that it's actually your fault indirectly. He wasn't complaining when God created created and gave him to her. But now, now that the, the trouble's brewing, it's easy to cast. And then the woman, it was the snake. It was, it's always somebody else. And so that Sambalot and Tobiah, they tried to fight against the mission and vision through intimidation tactics. They tried to set up secret meetings with Nehemiah because they were going to assassinate him. And Nehemiah, would, he said, I'm not going to meet with you. We have a vision and a mission here God has called us to. I'm not going to be going to your secret meetings. I'm not going to be attacked by you. I'm not going to be led into that. And so he didn't give in to it. They were constantly trying to get the people to divide, to drive a wedge of disunity in them to stop rebuilding the wall. What they wanted them to do is to resort to infighting and forget the mission. And so again, recognize when the enemy is trying to do this and keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't, don't, be, don't be living in fear. Don't be, you know, it's not that we give the enemy that much attention, but we just be aware. But they were regularly reminded of the, the, the mission in front of them. And so we'll have hard times. Get used to that. You know, we see that again play out in, in the Bible over and over with the people of God. There will be times of discouragement, intimidation from the enemy. There will be times when he'll try to drive wedges of disunity and discord among us, suspicion. And we have to keep our eyes on what the Lord is doing. And so I'm going to close with this passage here. It's kind of the encouragement to us. How do we deal with those times when it gets tough? Nehemiah 4. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Again, right there, they are seeing the rubble. They are kind of overwhelmed. They're seeing some of these impossible situations. What does Paul says? Fix your eyes on what is not seen instead of what is seen. I know it's obvious, but God's working. It's like Goliath. Have you seen Goliath? And David's like, yeah, but have you seen God? We serve a big God. Verse 11. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived there near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall as the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated, we all went, returned to the wall, each to our own work. Each to our own work. From that day on, half of my own my men the work, did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, arm, 
armor, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. And neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each held his weapon even when he went for water. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They're, they're, they understand that opposition is going, but they understand the, the, the mission and vision that God has called There's going to be opposition. There's going to be the reality of this. And that's why he said, have a, have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. Now, we under, need to understand also that in the New Testament idea in the church is our, 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 our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against the principal, we are fighting against principalities in dark places, but we're not fighting against people in this world. The threat to the mission is real. The enemy does not want us to build the kingdom of God. He does not want us to spread the gospel of Jesus. And he will do whatever he can to make us ineffective. And so, first of all, we understand that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. How do we fight? We're not fighting against political parties that we don't agree with. We're not fighting against the world. We're not fighting against those who differ from us. It's against the enemy. They work for the mission and then they fought. It's work with each other and fight for each other, not work and fight against each other. That's what the enemy wants us to do. And so what does Paul say? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he's, also, he's already told us that, that, that we're not battling against f- flesh and blood. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so we're told in the New Testament how we fight. We fight by loving Jesus with all we are. We fight by repenting for our own sins. We fight by knowing the word of God. That is the sword of the Spirit. There's no, it's not by accident that the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. That is how we fight. We fight knowing the Word. We fight through prayer and intercession. We fight by being humble and teachable. We fight by truly forgiving people from our hearts. Because there again, if we don't forget, those are tactics of the enemies to take our joy, to cause division among us. So we fight by forgiving people from our hearts. We fight by refusing to get offended. Offense is one of the nastiest, most real things that the enemy is doing to the church in this hour. Is being offended with one another, being offended. We get offended at the drop of a hat. We need to stop being offended. We need to make it very difficult to be offended. So that we fight by not being offended. I refuse to be offended. Because we're going to have opportunity to be offended. People are going to hurt us. They're going to say the wrong thing. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it is not intentional. We have to fight by not being offended. We fight by being unified, even when we disagree. We fight by overcoming evil with good, as Paul tells us. We fight by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. 
so we understand what the real fight is. Those other fires, those other skirmishes are just distractions from the mission and vision God's called us to. And so in this beautiful picture here that you're seeing unfold, Nehemiah is calling the people and he says, you know, that, that they were stationed by families, fight. He was even, there was a call to men and that kind of, in a, to just to step aside here and just say, men, there was a calling to men here, men of God. He says, fight for your families, fight for your wives, fight for your children, fight for your homes. Fight the good fight. Serve God, love God, lead your family to God every day. And understand that the enemy d- does not want you to do that. And so, I, I like he said, he said there's going to be times where you're spread out. Well, we're spread out. It's not that we meet here every single day. We have different spheres of influence. And that even, even a picture here, he says, sometimes we are spread out. And Nehemiah had this guy next to him that would sound the trumpet. And there was times where it would just call. And he said, gather together. And when we gather together, God will fight for us. Well, how do we get God to fight for us? Is that we are unified. He said, gather together. Love each other. Be in unity. And watch God fight for you. And when we sound that alarm and say, we're going to love each other, we're going to be unified. We're going to fight against offense. We're going to fight against unforgiveness. We're going to set our hearts to the Lord and he will fight for us. And so the end of the story is beautiful because they rebuild the wall. They, they, they accomplish what was set before them. And I love that Jesus said to Peter, he said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I might build my church if, if people will do the right thing. He said, no, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, he's, so, and I just heard a guy recently saying, if the gates of hell are prevailing against the church, then it might mean we need to check our hearts and find out what God is doing. Why are there so many churches closing? Why are there so many pastors falling? Why are there there's so much... Stuff going on is we need to daily, every one of us, examine our hearts and walk in humility and come before the Lord with the right attitude and the right heart. Because Jesus will build his church and he's going to find those that are trustworthy and faithful and that are fighting the right way. And so during this time, and this is an interesting ending to all of this, during this time of Nehemiah, you have the prophet Malachi. It's the last book of the Bible. And so the last few verses, and it's not up there, and you can read it on your own time, but the last few verses of Malachi, Malachi says something that's very interesting. He says this. This is the last words of the Old Testament. These, it's almost like last words, pause button for 400 years. And so you just take note of what he's saying that is going to come. He said, at the, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he said, God will raise up the prophet Elijah. Well, Elijah, the prophet, the real prophet, he had already lived in, and, and he was gone to, to be with the Lord. He was taken up. He said, but there, he said that God is going to raise up Elijah. And he said, and the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the children to the fathers. He said, otherwise I will put a curse on the land. The end. That, that's the end of the Old Testament. Well, we, if we fast forward 400 years, the next prophet that would show up in a visible way is John the Baptist. And that's who he's talking about. John the Baptist, Jesus even said he, he came in the spirit of Elijah. 
what was prophesied about, uh, about, about John the Baptist? It says that he would prepare the way of the Lord. Remember, he came to prepare the, the, the first ministry of Jesus. And so he, remember when he was baptizing, he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another part of his ministry was, I must decrease and he must increase. But it's interesting, it says that, he said, The spirit of Elijah will come and the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the children to the fathers, or the parents to the children, or the older people to the younger people. Mentoring, discipleship. It's a call to discipleship. It's what Jesus said is the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. We must not forget that there is a mission and vision to love the next generation. Hearts of the fathers turn to the children. Then they will be turned to us. That's why Malachi says, if this doesn't happen, there will be a curse on the land. And then John the Baptist shows up in the spirit of Elijah and says, I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. Look at him. There's, there's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. Do what he says. And then we're in this generation, somewhat of Elijah generation, getting ready for the second coming of Christ. And what is our mission? What is our vision? It's to be like John the Baptist and say, behold the Lamb of God, to point people to Jesus. For us to love the next generation, to disciple, to make disciples of all nations, but to say, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Listen to him. I must decrease. He must increase. That's the way the church will make it. That's the way the church will survive, is to increase Christ, decrease ourselves, walk in humility, fix our eyes on Jesus, and win the world to Him. That's our calling. That's our mission. We see it in the book of Nehemiah. Let's stand. Lord, You've called us. You've appointed us. You've anointed us to do what you want us to do. Lord, there is clearly a mission and a vision. The Bible says without a vision, the people perish, God. And Lord, we do have a vision. Lord, it's to point people to Christ. It's to win the loss. It's to love as fathers and mothers, to love the next generation, to disciple them, to point them to Jesus. Lord, thank you for the mission and vision that you've called to this, this church to each of us, Lord God. And we are spread out. And we all have spheres of influence that we, Lord, I pray, God, that when we come together, it would be in great love. It would be to work zealously in our part of the kingdom, the part that you've called us to. I pray, God, that we would fight the battle, Lord, the right way. God, we're not fighting against people. We're not fighting against people. Lord, the enemy tries to get us distracted in the wrong battle. Lord, I pray that we would fight with love. We would fight by forgiving. We would fight by rejecting offense. Lord, we would fight by unity with each other, loving each other, loving the lost, loving God with all of our heart, that we would fight with humility, being teachable, laying down our lives for each other. This is how the world will know that they sin, is that you love one another. God, help us to be, Lord, uh, to know that there's a reality, that there is a, that is a real battle. But, Lord, not to be, live in fear, not to live dictated by it. But I understand that you've overcome the world. And if we walk with you, we overcome the world too. 
God, we love you. I thank you, God, for who you are. I pray a blessing over your people. I pray that we would go out today on mission with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome day. Hey, skiers, if you're going skiing, we're leaving at 1145. Be here.